Well, hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Jonathan and I am your content producer over at Stay Forth Designs. Before we jump in today's conversation, and it's a good one, so don't hit next, don't fast forward, sit with me for just a second. I want to ask you a question. How is your schedule right now? Are you maintaining it or is it controlling you? Now, if you're wondering how to answer that, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to consider exploring our Right Side Up journal. Our Stay Forth Designs team spent over a year developing this wonderful tool. We believe in it. Our team uses it. We've seen hundreds of leaders transformed by what we walk you through inside. So you're not getting just another productivity hack. You're getting something that's going to really help you implement daily weekly, monthly, and quarterly rhythms that will offer you enough freedom to structure your day in a comfortable manner, but enough structure to guide you and teach you how to control your schedule so that it does not control you. Now, the best part is you can grab one right now for 20% off while supplies last. So head over to rightsideupleader.com, click the big button right in the middle of the screen that says Right Side Up Journal, explore one. You can take a peek inside all of the benefits of this amazing tool. Now into today's episode, Alan has a great conversation with Doug Paul. I cannot wait. Slow this one down. Don't speed up. Enjoy your day and enjoy this episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Doug Paul, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. It's good to be on the podcast. Yes, sir. It's been a second uh, since I've seen you. I probably have seen you, I would say, intermittently over the last decade. You've done That's a lot fine. of stuff. Um, give us kind of a little bit of an intro uh, for listeners just getting to know you. Um, some of the things that you've done over the years that have shaped you uh, and led you to this moment. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I really came to faith probably around early 20s. And so very early on, I got my hands on a book called The Shaping of Things to Come by Alan Hirsch and Mike Frost. And that really changed sort of the vocational course of uh, my life in many ways. I, was, I think that's responsible for messing several of us up. Yeah, several. And, and, and in a really good way. And I think I was I was working at a mega church for a little while, knowing that I wanted to plant a very, very different kind of church that was going to really find its center around missional communities and multiplication. And we eventually planted that in the when I was in my mid to late 20s, if I'm being generous, and way too young to ever be given any kind of spiritual responsibility like that. But you know, what can you do? And we, we learned a lot about what it looked like to be on mission. We learned a lot about what it looked like to try stuff and fail over and over and over and over again. And then we, we learned like how through just iterating something over time, you can figure it out. And so we saw a, um, through, through that church plant and some of the stuff that we did after that, just waves of multiplication that was really nothing that we had ever really seen before. Or, or, or come into uh, contact with that was happening like in the Western church. And I mean, we, we all hear these stories about like India. It's like, oh, well, over in India or in China or in Nepal or all these other places that feel so distant and remote that it's hard to imagine like, well, what if that could happen here? And I think when I read that book, it just put this, this little seed of, uh, of something in me that was like, don't give up. Like there, this could happen here. And so the last 15 years has been, in many ways, through, through different ministries that I've helped start or lead, churches that we've helped transition. And then even now, I'm here in the, the city center of Richmond, Virginia, 
just thinking through what does it look like to innovate in really different contexts. And I think the thing that's been most exciting in this current phase of ministry is what does it look like to multiply those learnings to other people? That's good. I don't know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a quick thumbnail sketch. No, that's good. And, and I can see traces of how that's led you here. So uh, let's start with an anti-definition of innovation first. Uh, what is yeah. helpful to know that innovation isn't? Innovation, uh, I'll give you two, because why not? Uh, innovation is, does not equal invention. I think one, one thing that people oftentimes think is that if it, if it doesn't come from, like we, we think about creation, right? There was something, there was nothing, and then there was something. Um, and th that if it doesn't drop out of the air as if it's brand new, no one has ever seen it before, then it's not innovation. That's not true. It can be that, but it's very rarely that. It's usually tweaking something, adapting something, re-engineering something. The other one is that innovation is not dangerous. I, I think particularly in the church setting, uh, there is something in the water that says to change something uh, means that this thing is dangerous. But we, I mean, innovation is in the lifeblood of the people of God. This is our story. And I, I think that those are the, the two things that really quickly jump to mind uh, uh, just around, like, what's the anti when it comes to innovation? It's those two things, particularly thinking through the lens of Christian leadership. What are some other lies about innovation? One of them, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, the innovation really begins when a eureka moment happens. Um, it, there's a, a book that we just released and the, the first chapter, chapter is called Archimedes Revenge. And Archimedes is the philosopher who, uh, or the, um, the scientist who, you know, there's this, uh, I, there might be a giant plane just flying right overhead of me right now. I don't know if it's sketching that. Sorry about that. Just giving a little bit of context. I live about three miles from Richmond International Airport. And so every once in a while, one of those planes gets a little low and I'm like, what's, uh, that seems dangerously low. If, if something goes poorly, we'll have captured it here on this podcast. And, and you know, and you, you, you want the follows. And so that's, that's really what it's all about, right? Um, so the, the idea that you have this scientist who is just sitting in a bathtub. He has a big problem he has to solve, and he's stuck. And all of a sudden, boom, it hits him. He gets the answer. He jumps out of his bathtub. He's completely naked, running through the ancient streets of Syracuse, screaming, Eureka, Eureka, which means I found it. I found it. And I think sometimes we think that innovation or creativity, that's how it happens. It's I didn't know, and now I do know, and it happened in the flash of an eye. But in fact, innovation is, there's this guy named Steven Johnson, and he writes about like how ideas come together. And he talks about, it's the process of cultivating what he calls slow hunches and half ideas. These things that over time, they build and they come together slowly and they form something. And finally, we get to this point where we're like, you know, that might work. Like if we actually tried this thing, it could work. And I think sometimes we're so caught up waiting for like that flashpoint of inspiration that in fact, that, that, that's the innovation is a discipline. And it's something that we can cultivate over time, but we have to have the eyes to see how to do that. Talk a little bit more discipline. All right. How do we cultivate that innovative discipline? Yeah, I, th I think there are a couple of ways. There are ways that we can do this as leaders, but there are also ways that we can embed this in culture and in, in the teams that we might be leading in the organizations that th those teams are, are helping to shepherd. I think from a leadership perspective, I am 
I am oftentimes what's called a, a pioneer or an uh, APES language, an apostle, which means that I have no lack of ideas. And so one of the, one of the things that I found early on in my, my leadership journey is that I thought that if I had an idea, well, of course that I should do it, right? There's, there's no other option. If not me, then who? And one of, the, one of the disciplines that I had to learn was simply to say, if you have an idea, I've got Evernote. I have an ideas folder in Evernote. I'm just going to write it down and I'm not going to do anything about it. And I could get three of those a day. I could get 10 of those a day. I might get none a day, but like I'm constantly cataloging. And then a, one day a week, I'll just spend 20 minutes on it and I'll just review everything that I've got down. And then from a discipline perspective, just asking the Lord and, and pushing this into a place of like prayerful reflection with the Holy Spirit is there anything here that I should be spending more time on in just for a few minutes? And then once a month, I'll, I'll probably spend 90 minutes and really look at all of those ideas and be like, is there something, Lord, that you are calling me to move on? And quite frankly, most of the time, the answer is no. And I think that has been a developing surprise for me is that mm -hmm. most of the time, the answer is no. It's just an idea that's worth thinking about, cataloging, and maybe building on. It, ladder, it could ladder up to something. But right now, it's a no. Just let it be. That's really helpful. That, for me, that was that I had so much sideways energy because I love to start things going to all these different things that didn't amount. They just weren't things that I should be putting my time, energy, or resources into. I agree, man. I think there's like a support group here for people who have <laughs> tried to start doing little micro ideas. And you're right, it's an energy drain. And one of the things we talk about in coaching is that every new ideas guilty till proven innocent. And what I like is you're saying like, there's actually a discipline in the cultivation. And um, if you were a starter listening to this, you've exhausted your team before people are like, Oh, yes. no, not again. Oh, no, again. not again. So I, I've actually learned like, how do I hold that well? And how do I not freak people out in the process? Or just like, Oh, he'll never do it. It's just one more thought or idea, you know, it'll flame out kind of thing. So somewhere in between there, uh, Doug, yeah. I, I love this. Three years, man, three years on this book, Kingdom Innovation, uh, long gestation period, but it is birthed into the world. So congrats on the new book, yeah. man. Thank you. So Thank you. It's, it's a long journey. Really glad that the launch week is behind me and in the rearview mirror. Yes, sir, man. Well, take us back three years ago. Why did you say, man, I need to do this labor of love that is putting this into the pages of a book? So I was looking... It was, it was, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine and we, we were just talking about vocation and, and really like backwards looking, looking in the rear view mirror and thinking on a more macro level, just talking through the things that we were, that we'd learned. And he, he was just really helpful in helping me process where it is that some of these dots connected that perhaps I wasn't seeing. And one of the dots that really started to sh like shine out more than the others that and, and maybe more mystical language, but starting to glimmer just a little, was uh, that, that I was I was pretty good at learning how to innovate, but that I was also developing a skill for teaching other people how to do it. And the more that I pressed into that and prayed through that, the more that I kind of developed this bedrock conviction that with leadership, we, we're all wearing a tool belt. And there are all these different tools that are in the tool belt. And, you know, if you're a pastor, you're going to have to, you know, preaching or, or communicating, casting vision, 
Uh, if you are, if you're leading a team, being a decent manager at best, coaching really important as a skill set, as a tool. But there, th- this idea of innovation is a missing tool in our tool belt. It is not the only tool belt we need for the future, but it is, a, I believe, an indispensable one. And so the more the more that I pressed into that, and I was already doing a lot of reading about it because it's just sort of a natural, you know, you, you read what you're interested in anyway. The more I pressed into that, the more I was like, I think this is something to ring the bell on. And it's something that we can, we could get out that would actually be a real gift to leaders, particularly for Christian leaders. So that's, that was the genesis of the idea. That was the seed that was, that was planted for it. And then after that, it was like, well, what is that? What, what does the book look like other than it's going to be about in innovation in the kingdom? So how did, how did COVID change you as a human, a dad and a pastor? Well, we can spend a COVID amount of time unpacking that one. Eight, eight hour interview. Okay. Keep going. Eight hour. Yeah. That would probably just be scratching the iceberg, scratching the, scratching, scratching the surface, the tip scratch, of the iceberg. Scratching the iceberg, up. folks. That's what we do here on Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Scratching Bring the iceberg. Together. I, I think, I'll start with the personal. I think it took me a little bit of time to fully adjust to the way that our family rhythms needed to shift. Um, my wife and I have been very, I think we do a lot of things wrong. Um, sometimes we look at our kids and how we're parenting and we're like, what was God thinking allowing us to be parents? We, we we're not doing great on a lot of things, but I think the, the rhythm side of it, we've done very well on. And I think it took me a while to move out of some rhythms that we've had for a couple of years that were just not possible anymore. And I think subconsciously I was operating on this. We'll get through this and then this will continue working and we'll just keep the rhythms. And they just weren't. And I think one of the things that just took me a little bit of time and I think just frustration in, in, in watching what was happening with my kids um, and my reactions to them as I'm around them all of the time was I was uh, subconscious, subconsciously owning what, what had happened and what my responsibility as one of the leaders in our family, like what, what was incumbent upon me to change. So I think that was a really big one. It's probably the biggest one uh, that I've had just as a, as a leader with, with my wife and I in our, in our home as we're doing that together. And you fast-tracked the book because of COVID. We Tell did. me more about that. So... We, we we were uh, we were getting ready to sign a publishing deal as COVID was hitting, and then COVID hit. The draft was ninety five percent done, way 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 too many words. Um, so it was it was almost ninety thousand words uh, with the draft, and we the, the goal was to, it to be sixty. So we were only thirty percent over, and typically speaking, it would take between 15 and 18 months to give the full gestation period for, for what the book was. But we were doing um, all of these coaching groups that, that we started up during COVID that, that had just popped up. And it was right in the middle of March. And we were, we were coaching all of these pastors and just seeing like, going back to that, that missing tool in the tool belt, the, the, the desire to adapt, the desire to innovate, the desire to change was there, but the inability to do it because the skill wasn't there, it just kept hitting over and over and over again. And um, 
I, I got a, a group of people together who, who are authors that I'm, that I'm friends with. And just, we entered into like a week long discernment period, just to say like, Hey, should we fast track this or should we just let it run its course? Knowing that if we fast tracked it, doing something in six months versus doing something in 18 months would require, uh, there would be some adjustments to our life that we're going to have to be made. And really felt like we, we heard from the Lord that it was that we wanted to move it up. And so that, that's why we, uh, we moved it from, we went from March to October for a book in hand, completely done. And what are it's you insane. seeing from, from churches? I mean, you're literally writing into the perfect moment, I believe for this message. So what are you observing in churches around innovation uh, since March? I think I'm seeing some good things and I'm seeing some troubling things. Um, I think one of the troubling things that I'm seeing is the we're, we're not asking the right questions all of the time to get us to the innovations that we <clears throat> excuse me the innovations that we need. So what what the first one was that that everyone went to is like well how do we get our worship service online how do, how do we get it online and you know some some people were able to do that pretty easily some people were already doing it but the vast majority of pastors. Uh, anything was online was something that they'd recorded and they would pop it up. We're not talking live stream or anything that would blow anyone's hair back at all. And so the, the, the first month or six weeks seemed to be like, how do we get what we were doing in front of people who are sitting there watching it on a couch? But I think that was the wrong. It was like, how do we fix this thing? It was a how question. And it wasn't a why question. I feel like the real question was like, why do we have a worship service in the first place? And then if it, once we know the answer to that question, which I think for, for most of us is like, well, that's because that's what churches do. You know, we have weekly worship services. But if we, if we know why we're doing something, then we can start to reimagine and innovate. Well, how would we deliver that in a way that would be meaningful if we can't be together? And that would radically reorientate the way that we do online services. And I think we're going to see, the, the reason this is troubling is I think we're going to see, and Barna's kind of backing this up, we're seeing a, a group of people who, when given the chance to just sit on the couch and watch what was happening or not, and then given the second opportunity to come back, are choosing not to. Up to a third of people right now are like, you know what? I might be done with the church as we know it. And it doesn't mean they're not Christians. It doesn't mean there might not be some sort of spiritual community they're part of. But they're stepping away and are like, I, I wonder if brunch on Sundays might be a better option. And so I think that forces us to, to ask, like, what is it that we're, what, what are we inviting people into? Um, they, they, were they always participants when they were live and now it just feels more passive or were they passive all along and there was just some duty stuff around kind of up in there. So that's, that's the thing that's troubling. The other thing is I actually think there are a lot of pastors asking that question. There are a lot of people who are being really shaken by the, the, the fact that people aren't coming back, the fact that they feel disconnected from their calling, that they didn't know what to do, that they don't know what the future looks like. It is an incredibly destabilizing event. It is going to lead to burnout. We were just talking about this before the podcast started. It, it is going to lead to burnout. You're going to see tons of pastors just say, you know what? I'm out. I'm not out on being a Christian. I'm not out on being in the church, but I'm out on being the leader of it. And I think that there are, there are going to be all of these ripple effects, but I do keep running into pastors that do give me hope and, and encouragement around 
asking the deepest questions and are actually invigorated and excited about what the future could hold. What do you think bravery looks like right mm. now among church leaders? I, I think it looks like asking the very hardest questions that perhaps we are too afraid. We have in the past been too afraid to ask. And we now, we have in some ways time to sit with those questions, to actually let them really sink into our heart and our soul and our spirit and to wrestle with it. I think one of the, one of the fundamental things that happens with young leaders is they get into ministry because they, they feel the sense of calling um, by the Holy Spirit to see lives change and that those change lives that God would use to change the world. And somewhere along the way, they get suckered into running a church. They get suckered into this, the, the machine that is the church as we know it here in the West. And I think bravery looks like seeing that and actually letting it sit with us and then allowing God to speak as only God can. Okay, well, how then shall we live if that's the case? What are, what are, what are you calling me to if that's the case? And to live and to lead differently to change things if we need to. I'm not saying we all need to, but I, I think right now that is what it's, it's sitting with the biggest, hardest questions that we in the past might've evaded, but right now are just staring us right in the face. I know you work with some uh, socialpreneurs, some solopreneurs, uh, people doing all kinds of things. What kind of questions uh, do businesses and or nonprofits need to be asking right now? I mean, on a tactical level, I mean, just a, a real fundamental one. And you see this happening um, with, with everyone. It's like, what, is, what does work look like in the future? Uh, mm, a lot of overhead is spent on bricks and mortar offices. And we've been forced to learn how to work in these virtual environments, some of which, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them work better. Um, and so I think one of the things we have to ask about work life is, what are the things that work better in person? And what are the things that work better virtually? And how do we actually save money as a result of that? And so I think that can change some of the overhead expenses that we have. I think with churches, we're, we're going to be thinking through, hey, how do we, it, it, we, we have these conference budgets. How are we going to spend that money? Because I, th I still think conferences, live in-person conferences, or at least learning experiences are hugely beneficial but we might not go to as many of them. And I think we're going to be very selective on the ones we choose to, because if, if it's just going to be someone talking at me for two days straight, I can just do that in front of my computer and I don't have to spend however many grand to do that with a team. So I think those are, I think there are just some very specific financial considerations that lots of businesses, lots of teams, lots of churches are going to be making that are going to radically reorient our budgets at a fundamental level. Yep. It, it's interesting, Doug, hundred percent agreed. And, you know, as we talk about conferences, I think even separating some of the content versus the connection, we've gone big on going small and yet we hosted healthy leaders summit and we're seeing the beauty of both, right? We still need information. We still need to translate that. I think a question attached to the office idea is like, what's the role of our bodies? What's the mm -hmm. role of being able to touch people? Because if there's zero role at all, man, like, Internet's clean. We're getting a great conversation from across the country. 
and we get to stay with our families. We get to sleep in our own beds. Um, what's the role of doing work at home versus being together? And I think we don't even know how to ask that question, but how much do I need to be in person to actually impact, to actually affect uh, what percentage of me travels through the screen in terms of effectiveness, in terms of even innovation? Do we need to get in the same yeah. room in the future to, to have the best brainstorming? Um, so many questions, Doug, and uh, we need to have you on, uh, you know, six, eight, 10 months and say what's changed and sort of do a, yeah. you know, state of the church, state of the business, state of nonprofits. Talk about reformed versus reformers. That's a big point within the book. And moving from just being reformed to being reformers, what's the difference? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a point that I think many people probably know, but is, is just worth circling and highlighting and gold starring, which is when the Reformation happened and then the reformers as a, as a almost like a leadership entity came out of that, it was never meant to be like concretized. It wasn't meant to be talked about in the past tense. We are reformed as if we are a tribe that believes in these certain set of doctrinal stances. That's not what it was about. It was, we are going to, it is an active participation of reforming the church because it will never be perfect because it has imperfect people who God chooses to use leading it. And so there needs, there was, it started with this ownership of we will always be reforming, which is active, which is going. And it somehow turned into this passive, concretized, it's in the past, we're done thing. And I think there, there is something revolutionary about kind of reclaiming those 500-year roots. I mean, if there's a, at least a decent chance that if you're listening to this podcast, you're Protestant. And so we're, we're coming out of that stream or that tribe. Uh, it's not the only tribe or the only stream, but that's, that's probably your roots. We should reclaim some of that revolutionary impulse, which is we are constantly looking to see how God's kingdom is unfolding in front of us. Like Henry Blackaby is like, look, God's at work, join him in what he's doing. God is always doing a new thing. And so what does it look like for us to faithfully, because I think innovation is actually about faithfulness. It's faithfully responding to God's initiated work in this world. And just say, hey, I'm along with you. Uh, so many questions uh, on that. Let's talk about crisis for a minute. How has crisis bred innovation in the past and how might COVID be breeding new innovation right now? I mean, what, what's the quote? Crisis is the mother of invention. There's, there's sounds some, right. There, sounds smart. Sounds, and, it, and if it's not right, then let's pretend that it is. Um, that Doug Paul. I, I don't, I, I'm going to, I'm now like really concerned that I I've screwed that quote up, but I think I'm going to definitely look at that after uh, the podcast is done. I think crisis what it what it does is it it breaks the box of the way that we are doing things so that like the way that we were doing things won't work any longer we must change um or we just absorb into ourselves we're okay with complete irrelevancy and decline and ultimately death and so i think crisis forces us to make leadership decisions that oftentimes we might have been unwilling to make prior to that, or to make changes or adaptations that we might've been unwilling to make prior to that. What I think that does for us, and this is what I'm really hoping um, COVID provides, is not that we learn a thing about the church or a tactic, like a tactic came out of it. What I'm most concerned about 
and in some ways excited about is I think we might be developing some muscle memory for what it looks like to overused word of COVID to pivot or to adapt or to innovate. That's a skill. You can grow that muscle. And so I think we're having to grow it pretty fast, but it's been over a sustained period of time now. We're like six months, seven months into this thing and it's still going. And so that muscle can continue to grow. And so my hope would be what the crisis has actually produced is a new muscle that we can use into the future, not just one or two tactics that might work for, let's say, three years, and then we're done. And then it won't work anymore. I want the muscle memory more than anything else. All right, man. How is failure part of the innovation conversation? It is, this, it is the starting point and the end point in some ways of Tell the innovation more. conversation. All right. So this is, this is, when I first read this, it blew my mind. So there's this book um, that is considered one of the, the most important books of the last 40 years when it comes to um, organizations and innovation. It's called The Innovator's Dilemma by this guy named Clayton Christensen. He's a, uh, he actually passed away last year. And in the book, he talks about how 90% of successful organizations, so remember like 80% aren't successful. They, they, they start, they fail. 90% of the ones that actually did succeed, 90% of them are, are using a different idea than the one they started with. That meant that the first idea didn't work and they iterated, they pivoted, they adapted, they tweaked, and they, they came up with something new. And I think another way of saying that is what they tried failed. There was a misstep, there were miscues, there were failures. And they were able to like, with sort of like a ruthless tenacity say, this didn't work, but there's a seed of something here still worth going after. We will go after it. And chances are the next idea didn't work either. And the next idea didn't work either. But they were, they were tenacious enough to actually go after it until it finally did work. And I think this is a really difficult one, really difficult one, specifically for Christian leaders. I think it's, it can be hard for anyone, but there is something in the water of evangelical Christianity that is mortified at the idea of failing and to do so publicly. But I think until we, we start saying failure is not okay, but it is expected, and we're going to bake that into our process, until we do that, we are not going to see uh, innovation in our culture in the way that I think the gospel really needs. Yeah, sounds sounds more like baseball than free throw shooting. I mean, in the sense that yeah. we've got to get used to taking our cuts and getting up there and going, man, Hall of Famer sitting in the two hundreds. And yeah, well, and there's there's this great story. Um, this guy named um, Tom Kelly, who runs an innovation shop called IDEO, and he talked about how there was this baseball team that kept going. I'm, I'm just running right off your baseball story. There's this baseball team that was just they had a losing culture. And one of the things that he noticed is that people, every time they flied out, they struck out, or they were tagged out, they just, it was demoralizing for them. And yet, just what you said, like you hit 300, which is only getting three out of 10, you've made it to the Hall of Fame, man. And so he, he baked this thing in every time someone struck out, was tagged out, or stole out, or was tagged out, they, had a, they installed a toilet in the dugout. And they flushed it down and they were like, and that one's down the toilet, let's move on. And they kept in like every time it happened and they were normalizing it, but they were doing it with an artifact in their culture. 
And the next year they won the championship. Now it makes a nice story because of like that redemptive arc. It's the arc we're always looking for, uh, particularly with sports. But I think it says something of you have to do something like in baseball when you know that seven out of the 10 times or eight out of the 10 times, it's not going to work. And I think that's closer to the way ideas work than it is than we think in maybe sure. I don't, I, in, I wonder, in the NBA or whatever it is. I wonder how much is an expectation game, Doug. It is. Of if we are expecting to win 100% of the time, then of course a loss is demoralizing. If we are expecting, maybe even celebrating failure as an opportunity, you went for it, you risk, you, you stretch 10% beyond. I wonder how much of that is baked into our expectations. And so therefore we're experiencing the aftermath of what we see as failure versus, all right, next one, go get them, you know? Yeah. And I think it's also, there is a lot of ego wrapped up into that, which is incredibly important. As, as much as we can talk about innovation as a skill, we also have to talk about the character traits of the leader that are necessary if you're going to be that kind of leader in the future. And one of those is facing the fear of failure. Like I'm an Enneagram three. So this is like right up my alley. Um, facing that fear of failure is ground zero for, for moving forward in leadership in the future. You're going to have to confront the fact that you are probably f- just desperately afraid of failing and asking why and where's my identity coming from. Yeah, it's good. We got to go below the surface. We do. Because I think if we don't change the roots, we're going to see that different fruit, which is not innovating. It is probably copying, pasting, hoping for different results. Let's give it one shot. I wonder how many leaders are on the right path, but quit two or three iterations before. Yeah, I think about I think about that one a lot is they were right there. And then they were like, I can't, I can't go through this again. Um, and I, and it goes back to your point, uh, Alan, around, around expectations. If my expectation is like, it's going to take at least five times before this thing works, that probably really changes than if I think I'm going to hit a home run on the first, on the first swing at it. It's mm, good, man. Uh, give us a snapshot. What do you, where do you think the post COVID church is heading? I, I think it's going to accelerate what was already happening. I think uh, there, there, was, there was something already happening within the, I'm gonna go pretty macro level on this. I, I think there was a, um, in, in our wider culture that we're part of, we're seeing the same kinds of things happen where you're seeing what, what's called bundling and unbundling. So bundling is everyone is kind of laddering up everything together. So you've got Disney, and they're going to buy National Geographic, and then they're going to buy um, the Marvel MCU, and then they're going to, like, it's, it's all of these things just stuck together. HBO Max doing the same thing, or I guess it's Time Warner who bought HBO. But it's like these, these giant entities that are just gobbling up everything. They're becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and there are going to be people who that's what they want, thinking about, like, the church. They just want to be part of a, quote, winning team, um, and they're going to they're gonna feel good about that decision. I'm not here to judge their decision or anything else. That's what they're going to choose. But on the other side, there's an unbundling that's happening where you're watching some of these churches. Um, I'm, I'm working with one right now in Michigan, like really, really, really successful multi-site church. 
but they are now uncoupling all of their sites so that all of them can be even more contextual. It might be less efficient, but they think it's going to do better ministry. And so I think that's going to happen as well. I think you're going to see more and more power in the local neighborhood churches in things that are far more built on relationship than they are on programs and personalities. And I think you're going to see both of those happen at the same time. And I think internet church has only accelerated what that's going to be. You either were leaning in, you're like, this is my spiritual family, or you checked out and you either went to, you know, if I could listen to whoever at the same time, or I could listen to my schmo pastor who is nowhere near as good of a communicator as X, Y, or Z, whoever your favorite preaching pastor is, well, who am I going to pick? And I think it's either I leaned into that relationship, I'm local, um, or I've leaned into, I, I want the big winning team. And I think you're going to see the, the acceleration of both of those things. Yeah, already starting to see some of that. That's a great way to to put it. Doug, what's a risk you are dreaming about, thinking about, maybe even terrified to mention on the air right now? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, I'll <clears throat> I'll say... I, uh, I I did this thing. I, actually, your um, uh, Jr. Your your brother uh, was part of some of this thinking around this. I did this journey with our daughter where we read through the Bible in a year, um, and so we we finished that up. It overlapped a little bit with uh, the be- the beginning of COVID, and we we kind of wanted it to be a when you turn ten, you're going to do this, and if you do this, we're going to go to Israel. And about six weeks in. I was like, I really don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was because of the schedules and everything it required. I'm not a morning person. She is required getting up way earlier than I would like. And we were spending an hour together, like just doing something for an hour every day. uh, That was new. That wasn't already baked into our rhythms was, was a big adjustment for me, but we, we slogged through it and we did it. It was incredibly meaningful. Well, my middle son turns 10 in a month. Um, and it's one of those, I don't know if I would say that it's a risk, but it feels like I'm, I'm like gathering my breath again to do this again, um, with him. And I don't know that it's a risk, but for, for whatever reason, that's what popped into my mind when you asked that question. Uh, the idea that like, this is another time commitment, a significant one, uh, that I'm going to make, but it, the last go around, it cost me some stuff. Like when I traveled and we still did it, that was costly. And, um, I I don't think it's a risk for like my parenting. I think it's a win, but it's definitely, I'm not like, man, I can't wait to do this. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's, that is what popped in my mind. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for sharing, man. Well, uh, last question. I would love for you to offer some encouragement to, to leaders. There's, there's tired leaders. There's discouraged leaders. There's leaders who said, I tried to pivot and my elder team wouldn't have it. I tried to pivot and our board wouldn't have it. Um, people don't want to push forward with me. I get excited. I dream and it gets shut down. Um, Leave kind of a last word of encouragement to that leader that truly believes change is possible, but is starting to believe it less and less. Yeah. So there's a story about this guy named Bill Wilson. Um, He uh, had, he had, uh, was Edison's, uh, he had been in, he was invited to become uh, Edison's apprentice in his personal laboratory. And right around the time that he got that invitation, he started to drink. And he was, I mean, he was, he was 
brilliant in the way that Edison was brilliant and wasn't even able to respond to the invitation because he was, he, he was on like a three month bender that just wouldn't end. And it was 14 months of crazy. Um, I, I mean, like just binge worthy alcoholism. And he, they, they spent every dime they had. He tried everything. He tried church. He tried, I mean, like everything he could, he couldn't, he couldn't get it to work. And he finally figured out uh, a couple of things that he was able to like take some of those half hunches and slow ideas, put them together and it laddered up into something. And ultimately where it started and where it continued to this day was in his living room. And what, what he ultimately was able to put together was this thing that we now know as Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think when Bill Wilson was starting that, he did not know that 130 million people we're going to get, be part of Alcoholics Anonymous today. The only thing that he was concerned about was staying sober. That was it. And I think sometimes we have these aspirations for the big 130 million people. We want to change the city. Um, the, fir- the best encouragement that I can give is if you feel called to try something or, or to bring about change or to adapt, start in the laboratory of your own life. Just start in your own living room. Start with your family and a couple of others. Sometimes the best leadership isn't going to come from within the organization as the starting point. It's going to start on the edges. And the edges can be you and your family. And if you're called to that, you don't need a church to say yes for you to start experimenting and pioneering. It doesn't have to be a church program. If you have a vision that God has placed in your heart, just start trying. It may work, it may not work. But sometimes I think this is the way that the church has actually done some, some damage to us is when we think about change, we start organizationally rather than starting organically in our own living rooms. And I think that's the biggest encouragement. Have fun there. Invite your family into it. Let them be part of the adventure of what God is doing because he is doing it and we just get to be part of it. Doug, thanks for what you do. Thanks for coming by the podcast and congrats on your new book, Kingdom Innovation. Guys, you can pick it up wherever you want on the interwebs. Uh, grateful for you, man. Thanks for coming by. All right. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast. You can catch us right back here every Tuesday and Thursday, wherever you consume podcast. And do us a favor. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe. Your little pocket device or your computer will automatically update you whenever new episodes drop. And you can also leave us a rating and review wherever you consume the Right Side Up Leadership podcast. We really, really value those. We love hearing what you have to say, and we love using those to help get this message in front of more eyes, ears, and hearts. Last but not least, if you haven't picked up a copy of the Right Side Up Journal, you can do that by heading over to rightsideupleader.com. And while supplies last, you can even get one for 20% off. It's a great way to invest in your leadership and the leadership of a friend. So we'll see you right back here on the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. And in the words of the one, the only, Alan Briggs, stay warm and well-fed, friends. Shut up. Focus so long